0: Deo valente. Amen? Amen. I learned uh, from some of you who went to the March for Life that the proper preaching response, if you want, or uh, response, trigger, uh, the proper prompt, if you want an amen from the people, is to say amen as a question. And it worked. Huh? Amen? amen. See, yeah, see, it works. So we'll, we'll see if that shows up. We have a lot to work on tonight, and I don't want to overstay our time at all. It's a powerful set of texts. You heard Jesus talk about money, and money is a pretty uh, awkward thing to talk about, honestly. Generally, people get very personal about their money, uh, but the part of the text that we skipped over that we will look at that came right before it, right after our text from Sunday, is where he also talks about divorce. So now you got divorce and money, both sitting right beside each other. And uh, right after that, you have a whole bunch about how, well, the disciples are still arguing about who should be the greatest. We dealt with that already. Uh, And uh, we'll, we'll maybe start there then. We've dealt with this more than once. So while we're headed to Mark chapter 10, which we'll start on page 845, I want you to find Mark chapter eight. Verse 34 to 37 tonight, because there's two or maybe three themes that are going to touch down once or twice throughout this text and therefore throughout the sermon. And the first one is this. We're just going to track the three times it touches down. So Mark 8, 34 to 37, Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, excuse me, for whoever would save his life, that's what you want, will lose it. That's what you don't want. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels? So the start of, it's about your soul. And the question or the riddle, you want your soul? You want to save it? You're going to have to lose it. That's the start. Chapter 935 gives us different language for the same thing. Or verse 9. uh, Verse 35. Chapter 9. That says this. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then we heard it read in 1031 just a few moments ago. It comes back, right? But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So you've got this idea of something like a level playing field in which you shouldn't try too hard to do something. And that that something is both to save yourself and be the greatest so that at judgment day, you're better than everybody else. Uh, doing that will do you no good because on judgment day, the first is last, the last is first. If you tried to save your life, you probably didn't believe in Jesus. And so you ended up Saving the world, maybe saving your money, but you, you, didn't, you didn't know where to find peace for your soul. And so uh, on that day, which is to come, uh, it will be revealed that unbelief in Jesus is the greatest evil leaven, the greatest bad idea that can infect a human mind that there is. And Jesus is saying that to you because the moment you want to distinguish between your relationship with him and somebody else's relationship with him, the king, you've now made yourself an arbiter and judge of somebody else's property. Don't miss that in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, you are baptized a slave of God. And that means His property. And even though let's not have human slavery again until Jesus comes back, um, it's pretty awesome to be the slave of Jesus because you're in the house of the ultimate master, the good king. And indeed he takes his slaves, he makes them sons and heirs. That's who Jesus is, yeah? Uh, So all of this is to say then, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, which just came up last Sunday, is probably tied a little bit to this, I don't wanna be last because I'd rather be first uh, mentality that Jesus is seeing in his apostles and trying to teach them that in the kingdom, that's not how it works. Because in the kingdom, you got this guy who's first He's the king. And guess what? Guess what he is also? He's, I mean, you know this, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So who is he talking about? Them or him? Yes. Him first, then them in him. Remember? You pray the Psalms as you inside of Jesus, because Jesus is inside of you. Fighting against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, which we talked about as being some combination of cowardice and, and uh, uh, um, scoffing. That's a good way to think about it. The Pharisees are going to show up here again in our text. But first, one last bit of this last first save to lose thing. It meets another metaphor in the text that we ended with on Sunday, and I want to take a few moments tonight to really drive that metaphor home for what follows, because I think it matters almost more. That metaphor is in uh, chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, right before where our official text will start, and then we'll just run right through the text more or less from there. Um, But chapter 9, verse 49 and 50 says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And while it's really interesting that salted with fire is called mixing your metaphors, you're not supposed to do that in English poetry, your grammar teacher told you that, or she tried to and you didn't write it down, right? But it's it's something you're not supposed to do. And as an English major, I, I, I wonder, what do you, I see why. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? Salted with fire, how does this work? But while fire is there as an image of hell, which came before, and thus judgment, um, salt shows up three times here, right? Salted with fire, salt is good. Losing saltiness, I'm sorry, five times. Make salty, again, have salt in yourselves. So the key metaphor here is salt. And while as a normal 21st century Western living American, I'm sure you know that salt is pretty good for seasoning stuff, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah, okay. You can laugh at that too if you want to. I thought, I think it's kind of funny, but you know, seasoning, yeah, of course salt's good for seasoning. Duh, everyone knows that. Yeah, but in the ancient world, it was more valuable than the 99 cent iodized can you get at the bottom of the supermarket don't worry about salt salt was a key piece of trade because it was used for a lot of different things seasoning not the least of them i mean if you eat lamb anybody yeah good if you don't like it i think i can tell you why it needs more salt i used to hate lamb I pour salt on it now i love lamb it's good for other things including something you do with the lamb Like sacrifices. Salt was part of the Levitical system to add to sacrifices. Why? Because it made the sacrifice taste good in God's sight? Well, eh, maybe, metaphorically, maybe more so because it also is an ancient cleaning agent. It's used for disinfecting things. Salt's a purifier. Cleans wounds, right? It's, It's good. Salt is good. Seasoning, purifying, sacrifice and it purifies the sacrifice so the purifying is part of the sacrificial usage of it that's a very jewish thing old testament thing salt and the sacrifice there's one other thing salt's used for in the ancient world and it's not so good so this is when you don't like your neighbor and you sneak out late at night with a, a big bag of salt for your driveway and you scatter it on the land he just scoured and dug up for his garden next year yeah you put salt all over that and you know what's going to happen right oh salt was good <laughs> not there it wasn't right so this is what ancient peoples would do to each other after they conquered each other right so you imagine there's a war between pecatonica and rockford and rockford wins, and then they scour the fields with salt and they leave them there to just hopefully rot and die and that is what salt was used for with regularity in the ancient world Judgment, destruction, purification of things you don't want, which is what you're doing with the germs too, judgment and destruction. And then seasoning. You're actually making the flavor you don't want go away too. Salt's a fascinating thing. But what do you do with the fact that Jesus wants you to have it in yourself? This is where anyone is like, I take the Bible literally. It's like, so Jesus says, eat lots of salt, right? Like, is that what he meant? Or do you mean that what salt does, season, purify, you know, to send away things that are not good and in fact be meat for a sacrifice, what salt does is is what the word of God does. It's what faith in Jesus does. you know, to, to stay salty, my friends, in that way, means to stay inside of the word of God, no matter what kind of corruption the world throws at you and then that's where Jesus is going to get pretty salty when he's talking about divorce um, there's just no question about it but if you can take a step back to some of the other things he just said again on Sunday he talked about how if your hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away he talked about how if your if your foot causes you to sin cut it off, throw it away if your eye causes you to sin, Gouge it out and throw it away. And the reason Jesus says all of this is also the last will be first and have salt in yourselves. And just like he doesn't mean eat more Himalayan pink salt, it's got iodine already. He doesn't care about that argument. Uh, uh, So also he doesn't want you to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. Because the problem is, let's say you gouge out your eye. Are you going to stop sinning? The eye was not the cause. Jesus told us several chapters ago, where does sin come from? Is it what goes into a man? It's what comes out of the man, out of the heart. So he doesn't mean cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. He means tear out your your heart. And every one of us should do what that rich young ruler is going to do in a moment, go away sad. I don't even know how to tear out my heart. So let's just maybe believe that Jesus is here to just transform yours to regenerate it, to give you a new one that's not without the old one. What a thing. So then with that open mind that Jesus is the salt to cure our wounds, let's hear what he has to tell us tonight about divorce and money, two things that go hand in hand in American civilization, let me tell you. Um, I tell young people uh, regularly, not that regularly, thank God, um, uh, whatever you do, don't call a lawyer because once you do, it's over and it's going to cost more no matter what. And I'm talking about divorce law, right? I'm not talking about you know someone you know, uh, you know, shot your dog or whatever. Um, the idea is if you call a divorce, divorce lawyer today, you open the door to an industry that does not stop, does not stop until it gets its way. And you have to have a very strong conviction that you're not gonna get divorced if you're gonna outlast the lawyer's car salesman attempt to sell you the very expensive car that is a divorce. Uh, and so I, I tell everyone, don't even, don't even. And, and when I talk to them about getting married, I say, look, if you're going to get married, you're never going to get divorced. Just know it, going in. Just, it'll make it way easier. still going to be hard. It'll make it way easier. I say all those things to them with such bluntness because divorce is the norm in our civilization. Two out of, uh, know, one out of every two marriages, I believe, something like that, which is a little skewed towards second and third divorces that get counted in that. And the issue here is not so much that divorce happens, or that Christians can't live through a divorce and still be a Christian, or that we can't live here now because people around us divorce each other. The bigger issue is, if you're going to go and you're going to try to trick Jesus, expect him to give you the most blunt answer you can get, and that's what the Pharisees are going to do with regard to divorce. But let, let me first talk about marriage for just a second here. Um, because marriage has changed. (laughs) Did you notice? Uh, Marriage has been changed around us, but it changed long before the so-called Respect for Marriage Acts and things like this that have shown up and shifted all manner of what we believe about man and woman. Um, It changed when probably a hundred some odd years ago we stopped thinking what everybody who ever came before us believed about marriage Which, indeed, it was a man and a woman, but that wasn't even the primary thing they were thinking about. It's going to blow you away. For everyone in the ancient world, marriage was a social, meaning public, legal contract between two families. Everybody thought that. None of us think that now. That's probably the most important thing to ponder. What a change. Generally, the goal of these two families was to promote the life of their chosen offspring, their natural born children, and their property after their death. I mean, I'm a father. I got a daughter. I'm going to die someday. I'd like her to be taken care of. I'm a son. My father has a whole bunch of property. He wants some grandsons to take on the family line, and I want a wife to help me. So we will find a family with the wife who is able to provide these things, and together our families will be stronger than apart. That was just the way they thought, and I would suggest to you the reason that they thought so differently than us is they lived in a time of survival, and we don't yet and won't. I hope and pray, um, but for for them, survival and not survival was often just around the corner, and so they took things like the next generation a lot more seriously Uh, we're so comfortable we don't even think we need to have the next generation or we can mutilate half of them and it won't have any effect you know that's how comfortable we've gotten and and you can kind of see what's what's going on with that again marriage falling apart Uh, here's some kind of just the nerd stuff but i want to share it the cool stuff in ancient marriage you would have always had a dowry of course, the feminists will tell you about the dowries, part of the patriarchy. It meant that uh, the guy was effectively getting paid to have the woman come to him, and it was all about uh, trading her as a piece of property. Of course, women, they, they'll tell you, were just like cattle. Well, I'm sure there were some evil people who thought that about women, children, other men who didn't look like them or had a different skin color or had the same skin color but were poor and weak, and they thought they could enslave them. All sorts of people thought such things. But the reason for the dowry was basically to help the young couple get started because, I mean, starter homes are never cheap. And so if you're going to pick up this other person and some mouths to feed, like I want my grandkids to get fed. And since you live three days' journey that way, I'm going to make sure you have an estate. That's the dowry. Um, Now, uh, interestingly, Jewish law in Moses and then the rabbis introduced something that no one else had uh, that. The Pharisees will ask about in just a moment in the verse. They're going to ask why Moses said uh, that uh, the husband could write a legal document. Uh, Is that what it says? Written document? A written document and give it to her. That's very uh, kind of funny Greek Jewish speak for uh, get lawyers involved. So where the dowry was something everybody did in the ancient world, the Jews got lawyers involved, particularly before the divorce document for something called a ketubah. And this went to the wife. So while the man got the dowry, the wife got the ketubah, a legal lawyer document that was basically a prenup. And it guaranteed that in the event of divorce, the dowry goes back to the family. So if my dowry is a vineyard and I divorce her, guess who gets the vineyard? She does. That's Jewish law. Jewish law. Recognizing the right of the woman. Do you see um, Greco-Roman law, by the time of, Je- by the time of Jesus, uh, lets anyone divorce anyone if you're elite enough to pay for it. Uh, and at that point, again, the dowry would be returned as part of normal law. Uh, and initially, while women were able only to sue through a male relative, like an uncle, again, by the time of Cicero, who predates Jesus by quite a while, uh, anybody who has money can divorce anybody in Roman law. Um, It's become kind of normal. But what remains then that should be heard in our text especially is for all of these people, divorce always has a negative stigma to it. And I would suggest that even if you've been through a divorce today, and if you have, I encourage you to believe you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. That this has no bearing on your election in Christ. It's more about your wisdom and what you do next. uh, But that you know full well from your emotions the negative stigma. You just know if you feel it it just doesn't feel good divorce doesn't feel good ever Uh, and so uh that negative stigma is largely tied in the ancient world uh to adultery or infertility and this has maybe some more to do with the law of moses uh which in deuteronomy teaches us that you're allowed to divorce a woman for what deuteronomy calls shameful things now here again we get some very interesting moves only men In the jewish court initially are allowed to divorce a woman and they're only allowed to divorce for what moses calls shameful things which aren't really explained it does definitely in jesus day require lawyers certificate of divorce and so forth Um, but what happens is that the rabbis over the course of uh several hundred years at least from malachi who says God hates divorce uh, to when Jesus comes, the rabbis have tried to figure out what that shameful thing means. And from looking at the couple of texts in Leviticus that do give rules for divorce beyond that, they're able to figure out, and please feel free to laugh, but I'm not kidding at all. They figure out that according to Moses, divorce is mostly the woman's fault. That's just their assumption in the rabbinic codes, the Mishnah, what you might call Phariseeism, what you might call ancient Judaism. Literally believes it's usually the woman's fault. Um, However, uh, the woman can, the woman can, uh, excuse me, and it can be for such things like this, right? So um, if you as a woman were to feed your husband some food that had not been tithed on properly, You know, you forgot the cumin to tithe on it this month. Done. Legally, perfectly allowable. That kind of thing. Now, I did mention they have some protections for the woman. So just so you know, if his body opens up in pussy boiling sores that don't go away, you can, in fact, divorce him according to rabbinic law. Um, Or uh, conversely, and on the same level, I mean, just as bad, right? Open pussy boils, if he becomes a coppersmith, done. He's gone. Now, I think that does have to do with smell. I'm not sure. I didn't look that one up, but it is one of the laws. Um, And I I guess sores and boils, coppersmith, what can no lady tolerate? Or maybe if you think about it differently, what would no father put up with? Because I will suggest to you, whenever you see divorce law entering on woman's behalf in the courts of the ancient world, Jew or Gentile, you find the father involved fast. Why? Because he cares. And he's the man who's given to fight for her which means that even after marriage, the father's interest in his daughter matters, although she has been given, again, to another man in order to bear more sons. The point is the question of what is shameful, and this goes into our text now, what is shameful gets quickly lost in the details of things like untied food and sores, right? Um, But there is, again, we're just dealing with the rabbinic code, there is one more law that's probably worth knowing, So this is rabbinic code, you know, old Judaism. Um, Of course, if the guy's not a Jew, you can divorce him for any reason at any time. It's what they believed. Jesus has a different view. We're in chapter 10 now. Verse one, he left, went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. His crowds gathered to him again, and he asked, as was his custom, he taught them. Here's these Pharisees, these enemies. They come up to him. They've got their 11. It's scoffing. How do they scoff? They test. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why is this an insincere test? Well, they know what Moses said. They know fine what Moses said. What are they trying to get out of Jesus? He answers them. What did Moses say? It's a nice little uh, way to avoid a conflict is ask a question of the person who seems to be aggressive. doesn't always work. I can testify. Uh, uh, They said... Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. That means get a lawyer and send her away. That that means divorce. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment to you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Let not man separate. So it's not so much that Jesus says Christians will never be divorced. And later in the New Testament, Paul will make it clear that there are times when you just don't have a choice. Someone basically divorces you. And there's not much you can do about it. But Jesus' answer isn't about how do I get to heaven. It isn't about how do I know I'm good enough. It isn't about how do I know I've never done anything to be ashamed of. Jesus' answer is about how do I know I'm not an Eden anymore. How do I know it's not paradise here? How do I know this place will never be good enough for us? And the answer is, well, divorce is a good example. Divorce wouldn't exist in Eden. From the beginning, it was not so. Neither was it Adam and, and Bob or Steve or Jim or whoever else might not be Eve, a woman. He didn't even call her Eve. He called her woman at that point, right? So, so here we have Jesus really emphasizing marriage as a central truth of reality, as salt to have in yourselves. Yeah. And then as he's doing this, this young man, right? Runs up and kneels and asks him, is verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We could probably spend 20 minutes just on that, but we'll, we'll leave it at Jesus just said he was God. If you're, if you're watching close, um, but then he gives them the Ten Commandments, right? So you're asking about eternal life. Well, uh, how about the good things that matter in life? You don't you don't shed innocent blood and uh, you don't choose to live in fornication and pornea uh, You will not take what is not your own. Uh, you will not lie about other people's names. You will not steal from others and you will bring honor to the office of father and mother, the authorities in your life. And the man in all earnestness says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth which means he wasn't a Lutheran. Because if he was a Lutheran, he would have been taught that that's not possible, right? But he wasn't a Lutheran. And I'm not sure Lutheran's teaching you is not possible is always the fair thing because he wasn't talking about his heart. He was talking about outwardly. But he had, he had honestly and authentically tried to do all these things. Jesus, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to be as good as I can be. This is great. And Jesus doesn't say you're wrong. Instead, got to find the text. Looking at him, verse 21, he loved him. Said, you lack one thing. Now, what's the one thing he's going to tell him to? Pay attention. Go, sell all that you have to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, if you take the standard Lutheran thing where he's just so wrong already, because he didn't understand inner sin, I think you missed that Jesus just called him to be an apostle, kind of, because he only says, follow me to apostles. And that's where it's like, was he inauthentic or was he just foolish, right? Because his heart was tied to the world. And so how do I, good teacher, guy who says, why am I good? Is God good? God's the only good one. Guy who is God what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Follow me. I don't know, man. I got stuff. That's where he went. And that's that's the brokenness of this man's faith. Now, I, I don't know what happens to him next, right? Um, but what happens next is Jesus starts to talk about money. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Yeah, geez, you mean being rich isn't a great idea? What are you talking about? Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I do think that the teaching about divorce and money and our relationship to it is meant to drive us to a point where we go, if I do have to clean my heart that much, I'm not gonna make it. And Jesus says, You're right, you're you're finally getting that then. Uh, But with me, God, the good teacher, Jesus, all things are possible. uh peter then jumps on this in a good way peter's statement which is we have left everything to follow you means he got what just happened he watched jesus fall say follow me and that guy walked away from follow me he's like whoa whoa, whoa. we're here we're gonna follow you what does that mean jesus does it mean we're gonna be poor remember he's talked about going to the cross twice already and that, that's coming soon but notice the profound promise here, that no matter what you lose in this life, houses, wives, lands, mothers, children, for Jesus' sake and for the gospel, you will receive, it says, 100-fold in this life and the next. 100-fold. That's an impossible number of return. And if you want to know the very clear answer to that promise, it's, I mean, just look around. You don't have 100-plus people in here. But you have brothers and sisters and houses and lands that are yours as a family, a tribe, a nation, a people, a kingdom that is bonded to the body of the one man, Jesus Christ. And you've received that in this life here, now, with these people around you, all of them, everyone. And in the life of the world to come, it just explodes into glory forever and ever. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last. So it's not about your rank, right? It's just about... Being inside with the king. Which then he foretells his death the third time on the road going to Jerusalem. He takes them aside. Look, the son of man is going to Jerusalem and will be delivered over. Verse 34. They will mock him. Spit on him. Flog him. Kill him. And he will rise. And James and John are like, can we get some of that? Give us a cup. (laughs) Except they don't know. They just want the greatness. Greatness. They want to sit at his right and his left. They, they haven't understood anything that I've been saying so far. And I can't say I would have done any better standing there with them. How long did it take? When, when, we're not going to read it here because we're out of time. But when, when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I can drink? And they go, oh, yeah, we can. I wonder what James was thinking the day they cut off his head with a sword. Because that was the cup. That was the cup Jesus drank. That was the baptism Jesus was baptized with. They asked for it, and it wasn't quite what they got. Who was on his right hand and on his left when he drank the cup of wrath? Well, a thief that was saved and a thief that wasn't saved. That's who was there. That's who it was prepared for. Who will be on his right and his left on the final day in glory? We'll let Jesus figure that out. Sounds like there's no right or left from what I can think of. It there's maybe a circle or something where we all stand together in the orders that God has made. And and that then is the encouragement to you tonight. Okay, So uh, leaving the text behind. remembering that we're walking with Jesus to the cross. He's the salt that has not lost its saltiness. And when He goes into you, he purifies, he seasons, and indeed, he scours a little bit. But the role or the the result is that then uh, you have salt in yourselves, right Which is this this very word of God walking with us to Jerusalem for the cross, and wouldn't you know? The next thing he's going to do is heal another blind man. It's as if it's all about having your eyes opened after all. In the name of Jesus, amen.